Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Holwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we are going to be discussing H.P. Lovecraft's weird tale, The Shunned House. But before we get into all that, a few things have been happening recently. They have. We uh, did a talk at the Milton Keynes Literary Festival a few weeks back. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Unfortunately, Matt couldn't join us because he was ill. And, and, and still am. It was a fantastically fun talk to do. Uh, the topic of it was the overlap between role-playing games and fiction, how the two feed into each other. And we were joined by Mike Mason. And that recording should be going out on our feed very soon. And Scott, what have you been running at the club recently? Well, I've had the rare experience recently of running a game that is not a playtest. It seems like for the last 18 months, every game that I've GM'd has been something that I've been developing. And I've finally actually got a chance to run something that that I, I want to run. That Well, no, that sounds bad. It sounds like I don't want to run the things I'm playtesting. But run something just for the hell of it. So I've been GMing a campaign of uh, Pandemonio. You may remember we did an episode on that and an interview with its author, Raphael Chandler. Oh, gosh, ages ago. Ages and ages ago. It has been an obscene, blasphemous amount of fun. Full of blood and other bodily fluids, uh, dead angels, lots of really badly thought-out plans. It's been fantastic. Everything I want from a game. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. This week, our word of the week is shun. A verb, one, to avoid using, accepting, engaging in, or partaking of. Two, to refuse to accept socially. Three, to stay away from, not to go. A bit like where I wish my bloody cough would go. <laughs> I, and... Uh... I think we'll actually probably be looking more at uh, shunned than shun, because Lovecraft used that a lot more. And, and he actually tended to use it as an adjective uh, rather than a verb. So he used it in, the terms, uh, in terms of things being shunned. And this is very evocative of his sense of disgust of things, that one wants to avoid them, not go near them, not touch them. They're so abhorrent that one must shun them. But it's a very gentle way of doing that. I mean, a lot of Lovecraft's expressions of disgust are very visceral things. They're repellent. You know, you recoil from stuff. They're detestable. But, you know, shunned, shunned sounds almost gentle in that respect. The word turns up 16 times in Lovecraft fiction, plus 51 times as shunned and five as shunning. Unsurprisingly, I guess, the majority of uses of the word shunned come from the shunned house. Shocking. Well, let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word shun in his writings. Beginning, unsurprisingly, with the shunned house. In ten minutes, my mind was made up, and taking my hat, I set out for home, where I bathed, ate, and gave by telephone an order for a pickaxe, a spade, a military gas mask, and six carboys of sulfuric acid, 
all to be delivered the next morning at the cellar door of the shunned house in Benefit Street. And from the Whisperer in Darkness. In the final layer of legends, the layer just preceding the decline of superstition and the abandonment of close contact with the dreaded places, there are shocked references to hermits and remote farmers who at some period of life appear to have undergone a repellent mental change, and who were shunned and whispered about as mortals who had sold themselves to the strange beings. And finally, from At the Mountains of Madness. For this far violet line could be nothing else than the terrible mountains of the Forbidden Land, highest of Earth's peaks and focus of Earth's evil, harbourers of nameless horrors and Archean secrets, shunned and prayed to by those who feared to carve their meaning, untrodden by any living thing of earth, but visited by the sinister lightnings and sending strange beams across the plains in the polar night. Beyond doubt, the unknown archetype of that dreaded Kadath in the cold waste, beyond abhorrent Leng, whereof unholy primal legends hint evasively. And on to our main topic, the shunned house. I think we were inspired to choose this story since we recently visited Providence and we took a tour of Lovecraftian venues and properties, and one of which was this very property, the shunned house on Benefit Street. Yeah, and it doesn't particularly stand out as... um a frightening looking place i mean the only unusual thing about it is is something that lovecraft picks up in, in the story which is the fact that the cellar wall uh it, it actually faces out and opens out onto uh the garden or if not the street itself there's nothing really kind of spooky or sinister about it uh, it's, it's a rather nice looking building but i can buy into it if it was abandoned and left for a while that it would look kind of creepy and maybe haunted except the shunned house that, that oh, 135 Benefit Street, which Lovecraft used as his inspiration, was never actually abandoned. Um, you know, Lovecraft made all that up for the story. It, right. Know, it was occupied throughout his life. But one can imagine that, oh, yeah, yes. that, that that could be the case. But yeah, it's, it's kind of, well, we'll probably get into this a little later. But it's, it's kind of weird to me to try to think what it was that Lovecraft saw in this house that inspired such a reaction in him that he wrote this story. Not just the story, but he wrote a poem about it as well a, a few years before this. Yeah, I don't really see it. Hmm. Do you recall about 10 or 15 years ago when the property came up for sale? Was it that property? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it was, because it was like, it's the shunned house, you can buy it. <laughs> yeah, right, if you've got like several hundred thousand dollars. But obviously it's just a private residence, and at some point it's going to come up for sale. It'd be pretty cool. So this story was written on October the 16th to 19th, 1924. Yes, it was first published shortly after Lovecraft's death in the October 1937 issue of Weird Tales. It had a bit of a tempestuous history before then. Yeah, I mean, there was a whole thing with Lovecraft or people wanting to publish Lovecraft's works in a book, you know, during his lifetime. And this, we don't really see many books of Lovecraft's work actually come out. I mean, most of his book stories were published in small press 
magazines. His friend W. Paul Cook had 250 copies of this manuscript printed, but not bound at the time. Yeah, apparently he hit health problems and financial problems and it just never came about. This had an introduction by Frank Belknap Long um, and it was to be the first publication in book form of one of Lovecraft's stories. But it it never actually got released until 1959 when Arkham House acquired these sheets, or at least 150 of them, and then released 50 of them sort of just... They, they folded 50 sets over and then just sort of released them as... Uh, what would that be, a folio? They released those, but then they had another 100 or so bound and sold those as an Arkham House uh, publication. Now, I did read in H.P. Lovecraft Alive, Josh's book, that Robert Barlow, Lovecraft's young friend Robert Barlow, did get some of these manuscripts and bound eight copies himself, one of which he bound in leather for Mr. Lovecraft himself. Oh, wow. And the others were just regular kind of cloth board binding. And he was a somewhat of an amateur bookbinder, uh, Barlow. So there's one copy in leather, bound by Robert Barlow and given to H.P. Lovecraft. Is this on your shelf yet, Matt? <laughs> Funnily enough, I actually haven't got any Arkham House books on my shelf at all. Oh, well, huh. this isn't Arkham House. This is much rarer than that. Yeah, this but, is pre-Arkham House. Yeah, I mean, the, on the fiction side, I've got very little by way of anything rare. It's mainly the RPGs that I've uh, well, taken to spending a shitload of money on. Plenty of time. <laughs> But the Arkham House edition of this is apparently the most sought-after Arkham House book because it is just so rare. In fact, it's so sought-after that there are actually forgeries of it out there, which is just mind-blowing. So be careful out there if you see one for sale. So it's like the ninth gate meets Arkham House. (laughs) Well, now let's dig into what actually happens in the Shunned House. The tale begins with our unnamed narrator opining about the irony that Poe regularly walked past a place that equals or outranks in horror the wildest fantasy of the genius who so often passed it unknowingly. And it's interesting. I've seen a few people uh, online complaining about the fact that he talks about irony in that first paragraph and then displays very little of it in the story after that. And I'd actually argue very strongly against that because this is a story about a haunted house that's not a haunted house occupied by a vampire that's not a vampire. I mean, that is pretty ironic. Yeah, that fits. The narrator talks about how the shunned house attracts the curious and describes it at length. Boy, does he do a lot of stuff at length in this story. <laughs> yeah, and this is a classic Lovecraft, you know, getting into the architectural description and, and the nuts and bolts of it. But as far as the attraction's concerned, I mean, he talks about how the local kids would uh, dare each other or, um, or at least go in and explore the house. And this is how he knows what the inside looks like. And at the time that the story uh, takes place, the house has been empty for some 60 years because no one in their right mind will rent this place for reasons that will become apparent. Yeah, he describes the house and the locale painting a picture of not only neglect, but something unwholesome enough to affect the plants in the garden and drive the birds away. I like these descriptions of the vegetation and they remind me very much of the descriptions that we see in The Colour Out of Space, of the plants not growing properly, of thin grey grass, 
of strange mushrooms and fungal growths. It all gives a feeling of wrongness. We don't know quite what that wrongness is yet, but it's it's planting that in our memory quite almost quite literally. Yeah, in in the tour.com reread of this, they they make the point in there of just how often in this story he uses the word fungal or fungus or fungoid. Uh yeah, almost to the point where it becomes desensitizing. <laughs> The interior of the building is described very much as creepy and decrepit. Lots of cobwebs, rotting, broken furniture. It's almost as if the place just, well, is littered with bits and pieces that's all falling apart. It was the dank, humid cellar which somehow exerted the strongest repulsion on us, even though it was wholly above ground on the street side, with only a thin door and window-pierced brick to separate it from the busy sidewalk. The bad odour of the house was strongest there, and for another thing, we did not like the white fungus growths which occasionally sprang up in rainy summer weather from the hard earth floor. Those fungi, grotesquely like the vegetation in the yard outside, were truly horrible in their outlines, detestable parodies of toadstools and Indian pipes, whose like we had never seen in any other situation. They rotted quickly, and at one stage became slightly phosphorescent, so that nocturnal passers-by sometimes spoke of witch-fires glowing behind the broken panes of the fetus-spreading windows. That would save on electricity bills a lot. <laughs> and he mentions a white patch on the earth floor of the cellar bore an uncanny resemblance to a doubled-up human figure. And obviously this is significant, and we will come back to the significance of this later. In gaming terms, he failed his spot-hidden rule. <laughs> On one occasion, the narrator saw... A kind of thin, yellowish, shimmering exhalation rising from the nitrous pattern toward the yawning fireplace. Now his uncle, Elihu Whipple... Can we just say what a great name that is? There are so many great <laughs> names in this, and we will discuss those later, but yes. And of course, this is his, his grandfather's name, Whipple, Whipple Phillips. Yeah has made a detailed study of the house using his skills as an antiquarian, classic Call of Cthulhu investigator, <laughs> and shares details with his nephew. William Harris built the house in 1763, tragedy starting occurring as soon as the family moved in, with their children and servants succumbing to strange, wasting diseases. And I think this is about the time I fell asleep when I was trying to listen to the, uh, listen to the audiobook of this. Yeah, and I, I can't really fault you for that. At this stage, I, the, the narrator starts going into a lot of history about the family, and this permeates the story. It's not just the family, but it's Providence, and not just the history, but the geography, and there's lots of... Absolutely fantastic historical detail. That's not the word I would have used. Well, no, I mean, it's rich. It adds a sense of verisimilitude. It adds a, a real sense of place. But, dear God, is it fucking dull. Yeah, Chris Lackey makes the point on the HP Literary podcast episode about this story that Lovecraft, in the story, the narrator says how his uncle had gone into lots of tedious, detailed research <laughs> about the genealogy of the families that had lived in the house previously. And then Lovecraft repeats it in the story. <laughs> and it's like, you've already said this is kind of tedious, but now you're giving it to us all. But don't just take my word for it that it's tedious. Here, let me prove it to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is kind of cool because it does build up a real sense of verisimilitude and of the layers of history and the people that have been there. It just tips the balance for me. I kind of really like 
some of it, but it's just that bit too much yeah. of it in a way that's kind of hard to get my head around and keep hold of. Exactly. You're bombarded with so much information, some of which is pertinent, most of which actually turns out not to be, that it becomes overwhelming. And I found it actually disconnected me from the story quite badly at this stage. I was going back, I was rereading paragraphs over and over again. I was just, you know, then, then you know, I'd read a section a few pages on and I think, oh, hang on, is that the same character? I'd have to go back and check. And I felt like I wanted family trees and relationship maps just so I could visualise some of this because the words weren't doing it for me. Yeah, I think if this were a scenario and we were editing it, I would ask that that information be presented a little more clearly. Because I think the information is sound, but um, the way it's presented in the text, it's not as clear as it could be. Yeah. For those wanting to skip to the action, just put the fi- um, go to a ebook of this and then put in flamethrower. Skip through to that and you'll be fine. <laughs> That's a, a rule for life, though, right, Matt? Yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, I mean, having said all that, this does feel very much like a Call of Cthulhu scenario, in that you, you do have all this research. You've got the antiquarian going together, you know, doing all the background research. You've then got the main investigator doing a bit more, you know, footwork and and you know, using his own experiences and and making a few library use roles and piecing together more bits. And it gradually does come together and form a picture and gives them an idea of what they need to do. It's a two-player game. One player is playing Elihu Whipple, the uncle. And one player is playing the unnamed narrator. And pretty soon, early on in the story, as is Lovecraft's one in numerous other stories we see, that Elihu Whipple, the uncle, doesn't survive the story. So this is foreshadowed quite early on that we know he's going to die. We don't know how, but we know that the narrator is going to leave the house, but Elihu Whipple, he's not. On the other hand, we're also told that Elihu Whipple lives in his 80s. So, oh, what? So he's got it coming? No, no, no. But I'm saying that, you know, depending on how long the story goes on for, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily mean anything sinister. It could just be natural causes. Have you read a Lovecraft story before, Scott? <laughs> one, one or two. <laughs> they don't um, die of old age, right? <laughs> very rarely. This guy, it doesn't seem like a natural death when it comes. Uh, no, no. It's pretty much the polar opposite. It's also that he's blessed with a good name as well. That seems to be a, a death mark. <laughs> Roby Harris, William's wife, went mad following the death of her husband and firstborn child. And she complains of a staring thing which bit and chewed at her. Now, this isn't really clear if this is just weird visions or nightmares or actually something manifest. I find that a really unnerving description, a staring thing that bit and chewed at her. I mean, that's... It's the vagueness of it that allows you to fill in the details in your mind and make it into something genuinely horrific. It does remind me a little bit of the description, the, the raw description of the Hounds of Tindalos, that they are lean and they are thirst. Mm. Again, it's very oddly specific, but at the same time very nondescript. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a real skill to be able to just find the right combination of, of words to paint a, a, a vague but evocative picture like that. And Lovecraft quite often, you know, went the other way and, and really heavily described things. But, you know, this is a good example of how he could pull that off when he wanted to. Yeah, and this isn't just sort of genteel, the vapours mad. She's described as having shrieking horrors and violent fits, often shouting for hours in a coarse and idiomatic form of French, a language she barely knew. 
that does describe pretty much how I spent the last three weeks, apart from the French bit. Are, are you mm. sure about the French bit, Matt? Are you sure? Sacre bleu. Or, or, or was it German because he picked this bug up in Stuttgart? Yeah, probably. It's the full horror when you start speaking French, though, right? We. <laughs> <laughs> oui. Yeah, 1D10, 1D100. He does have a thing about <laughs> even European languages, though, right? <laughs> yeah. His racism isn't limited to, you know, uh, other continents. Well, it is another mm. continent to him, but... Uh, you know, it's it's the original Dutch language is one of the stories finishes with, and this one's the French. And so he, he's uh, yeah. a linguistic... He's pretty much got it in for everyone. He's a linguistic racist. Yeah. Uh, no, it's it's not even uh, the language. Lovecraft and a lot of his stories, apparently, you know, his, his views on this tempered as he got older. But when he was younger, he basically saw anyone who was not of English stock, I mean, specifically English, as being somehow uh, lesser. One of the servants, Anne White, was a superstitious woman, and the narrator says of the area she came from, As lately as 1892, an Exeter community exhumed a dead body and ceremoniously burnt its heart in order to prevent certain alleged visitations injurious to the public health and peace, and one may imagine the point of view of the same section in 1768. And obviously the, the mention of 1768 is because that's when these events are taking place in the story. Just as a footnote, that event in Exeter that he mentions there was a real thing, whereby there was the corpse of a young woman. It appeared to be incorruptible, uh, which was possibly because her body had been stored differently than the rest of her family, uh, that her body hadn't rotted away and, and everyone else had. There was you know, shown to be signs of blood in her mouth, uh, which, again, you know, was probably just because of the way she decomposed. But as a result, everyone assumed that she was a vampire, and uh, so they, they cut her heart out and burnt it. The only surviving son moves out after his mother's death and leaves the house empty. Following his death, the house is rented again, with tenants suffering the same kinds of fates as the Harris family and their servants. The house falls vacant again in 1861 and stays that way for some time. Yeah, in fact, all the way up to the events of this story. At which point, you know, the, the narrator carries out his own researches into the house. I mean, at this stage, he's been relying very much on on what his, his uncle has put together. And he takes special interest in Anne White, the servant. There had been servants, Anne White especially, who would not use the cellar kitchen, and at least three well-defined legends bore upon the queer quasi-human or diabolic outlines assumed by tree roots and patches of mould in that region. These latter narratives interested me profoundly, on account of what I had seen in my boyhood, but I felt that most of the significance had in each case been largely obscured by additions from the common stock of local ghost lore. You know, I can pretty empathise with her if she wouldn't use the cellar in the kitchen, um, the basement kitchen considering that it's the floor is earth that there's mould and there's fungi growing up through it I mean who in their right mind would use a kitchen in that state? Anne White maintained that there must be a vampire buried under the basement responsible for the anemia and strange biting behaviour exhibited by the house's victims Yeah and this is the thing that's thrown in that, that some of the people who've succumbed to this illness uh, bite at or even attempt to cut into the flesh and drink the blood out of, of uh, the people looking after them which is a nice little detail The narrator researches the land upon which the house was built and finds evidence that it contained graves before they were moved 
to the North Burial Ground. There's a great quote that sprung up there when I remember uh, discussing this bit, and I think I did actually I must have woken up in this part when at the, earlier on he describes the fact that the road was straightened. Yes. Um, the Benefit Street, yeah, from Poltergeist, yeah. You only moved the headstones! <laughs> in the process, he learns that the land had been leased to Etienne Roulet and his wife. Yeah, and these were uh, refugees from France, Huguenots, um, who apparently had something of an evil reputation. I mean, you can tell that Lovecraft thinks they're, they're suspect because the first adjective he uses to describe Etienne is swarthy. The swarthy Etienne Roulet, less apt at agriculture than at reading queer books and drawing queer diagrams. But it's not just Etienne and his wife that are of evil reputation. It seems to be their progeny as well. It's, it, the entire bloodline seems to be tainted. Etienne's son Paul, a surly fellow whose erratic conduct had probably provoked the riot which wiped out the family, was particularly a source of speculation. And though Providence never shared the witchcraft panics of her Puritan neighbours, it was freely intimated by old wives that his prayers were neither uttered at the proper time nor directed toward the proper object. That's a fantastic little description, isn't it? Prayers not uttered at the proper time nor directed toward the proper object. It sounds like the kind of thing you'd expect from Puritan New England, but at the same time there's a genuinely sinister undercurrent there. I, I, I really like that as a bit of writing. The narrator realises that he has encountered the name Roulet before. The creature, Jacques Roulet, of Cord, who in 1598 was condemned to death as a demoniac, but afterwards saved from the stake by the Paris Parliament and shut in a madhouse. He had been found covered with blood and shreds of flesh in a wood, shortly after the killing and rending of a boy by a pair of wolves. One wolf was seemed to lope away unhurt. And again, this is an actual myth or a legend that Lovecraft had picked up on and decided to weave into the narrative of the story and obviously gave him the Roulet name. Yeah, he seems to have picked it up from a book by John Fisk called Myths and Mythmakers. It actually pretty much used the description from that book word for word. At his uncle's suggestion, the narrator visits the house at night. Yeah, because that's a bloody sensible thing to do, isn't it? The mould looks more like a human form than ever, and a strange vapour rises from it, appearing to watch him. Yeah, nephew, why don't you go to that creepy old house, like, in the night? You go do that. Yes, uncle. Okay, good boy. <laughs> yeah, well, this is going back to our social conflicts episode. You just made a persuade roll there. Or maybe fast talk. So after this strange experience, um, Whipple suggests to his nephew that they perform a joint vigil and attempt to cleanse the basement of its strange menace. They gain the permission of the, uh, the current owner, uh, the, uh, the last member or the current member of the Harris clan, Carrington Harris, and proceed to set up shop. Now their investigation is thoroughly scientific and they are armed with a specially fitted crook's tube and a pair of military flamethrowers. This is where Matt wakes up and joins back in with the story. The former is in case the creature is intangible, and the latter in case it is not. So they're prepared for all eventualities, but hold on. What is a crook's tube? 
A Crookes tube is an early version of a cathode ray tube. For those of us, uh, certainly of Paul and my generation, we grew up with big boxy televisions, not these nice uh, flat screen ones. And these things had big cathode ray tubes inside, which basically fire beams of electrons, which you know, in the case of a television would, would cause the screen to phosphoresce. In this case, it is just kind of a, a portable vacuum tube um, that fires a beam of electrons, of charged particles. You know I had one of those at uni and we had one at home well into the 2000s. A Crookes tube. Well, a cathode ray tube. Yeah. You see a big yeah. CRT TV. I, I prefer yeah. to think that you had a Crookes tube. You just kept it by your bed in case of manifestations <laughs> in the night. But but hang on, we, we, we've concentrated on the Crookes tube and not the flamethrowers. <laughs> They have two military flamethrowers. I mean, this is the thing that blows my mind about this. They're in this cellar, this enclosed space. Yeah. There are two of them in there. And what weapon do they think is the best thing to use in an enclosed space? Flamethrower. Flamethrower. But also two of them. So it's the idea yeah. that if you accidentally set the other person on fire, they've got a big tank of explosive fuel on their back. Yeah. You take opposite corners each, you'll be fine. <laughs> they're going to cover it. They'd maybe run out of dynamite at the general store at that point, or in fact the army surplus store they must have got from these. But yeah, I mean, this is one of these cases where rolling a 96 to 100 just ends the scenario. On the bright side, as Keeper, you're going to be like loving that, aren't you? When it's, oh, yeah. So, so what, are you, what are you taking to the house? Oh, we're going to take some, we're going to get those Crooks tubes. Oh, okay, Crooks tubes. And can we get flamethrowers? Sorry? <laughs> Can we get a flamethrower? Yeah! Yeah, you can get flamethrowers. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Do you yeah. want two? Make a luck roll. I failed. You get some flamethrowers. <laughs> you know, we've discussed before about having a deck of cards with set responses like, I go and buy some dynamite. I am so fucking putting I am buying a flamethrower yes. on that deck. <laughs> a military-grade flamethrower. Yeah, that's the thing that gets me. They're military-grade as well. I love that. You don't want any of these amateur flamethrowers no, for a job like No, not this. a domestic one. You want a domestic <laughs> flamethrower, right? Well, I mean, actually, actually there is such a thing. You, you yeah. get them for um, weeding gardens yeah. sometimes. I, Just, I you're remember. not going to kill a, a, a entity from the beyond with a... Like, weeding flamethrower. Oh, they can do a lot of damage. I remember uh, my family in Dundee many, many years ago, back in the 70s, had one. They, they rented it for um, for destroying the, the weeds in their garden. And and um, they stowed it in the garage and hadn't entirely switched it off in the process and it ended up burning down the garage. <laughs> Boom. Unlike your traditional vampire hunter who would go armed with a box of tricks containing a Bible, a crucifix, a wooden stake, uh, these... These two gents go in with a very scientific, very calculating mindset of how they're going to approach this problem, as demonstrated by the fact that yeah, you've got your tube, if it's insubstantial, you've got your flamethrower, if it's physical. Yeah, they've, they've thought this through in a quite rational way. And they have some philosophy to back this up. As the text says, We were not, as I have said, in any sense childishly superstitious. But scientific study and reflection had taught us that the known universe of three dimensions embraces the merest fraction of the whole cosmos of substance and energy. In this case, an overwhelming preponderance of evidence from numerous authentic sources pointed to the tenacious existence of certain forces of great power and, so far as the human point of view is concerned, exceptional malignancy. To say that we actually believed in vampires or werewolves would be a carelessly inclusive statement. 
Rather, it must be said that we were not prepared to deny the possibility of certain unfamiliar and unclassified modifications of vital force and attenuated matter, existing very infrequently in three-dimensional space because of its more intimate connection with other spatial units, yet close enough to the boundary of our own to furnish us occasional manifestations which we, for lack of a proper vantage point, may never hope to understand. So the two, our narrator and his uncle, set up camp in the cellar, with the narrator taking first watch. His uncle's sleeping face adopts an unusual expression of distress and he begins to babble in French. Dun, dun, dun. Whipple had a phantasmagoria of dreams with a strong impression of lying in an open pit with an angry crowd of Puritans looking down at him. And then the narrator takes over, has, you know, has his shift of sleeping and experiences some rather freaky dreams of his own. I felt in my visions a cosmic and abysmal loneness, with hostility surging from all sides upon some prison where I lay confined. I seemed bound and gagged and taunted by the echoing yells of distant multitudes who thirsted for my blood. And then, in good traditional Lovecraftian fashion, he is then awoken by a scream. The fungus in the cellar is now bright enough to see by, and the narrator observes something horrible. At this time it was, to me, only a seething, dimly phosphorescent cloud of fungus loathsomeness, enveloping and dissolving to an abhorrent plasticity the one object to which all my attention was focused. That object was my uncle, the venerable Elihu Whipple, who, with blackening and decaying features, leered and gibbered at me and reached out dripping claws to rend me in the fury which this horror had brought. At this point, the narrator realises the flamethrower will be useless in this situation. Who'd have thought? And so he uses the crook's tube. It surrounds his uncle with a blue haze. This is some great special effects here, right? But Whipple continues to change. And this is like something out of Ghostbusters, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, forget your proton packs. You just need a crook's tube. <laughs> Who are you going to call? Unnamed narrator. <laughs> <laughs> In that dim blend of blue and yellow, the form of my uncle had commenced a nauseous liquefaction whose essence eludes all description, and in which there played across his vanishing face such changes of identity as only madness can conceive. He was at once a devil and a multitude, a charnel house and a pageant. Lit by the mixed and uncertain beams, that gelatinous face assumed a dozen, a score, a hundred aspects grinning as it sank to the ground on a body that melted like tallow in the caricatured likeness of Legion strange and yet not strange. Yeah, he goes on and says, I saw the features of the Harris line, masculine and feminine, adult and infantile, and other features, old and young, coarse and refined, familiar and unfamiliar. The implication here is that the creature has absorbed the identities of everyone that it's fed on, that they're all there within it somehow. Well, it's like a possession attack to me. It's, it's mm. taken over his body and it's kind of eating him from the inside out yeah. and, and all these things that it's eaten before are manifesting on the surface. But, but as his body dissolves like, like hot tallow. Yeah, as Whipple melts into a sludge, the narrator flees. And when he returns, 
days later, come on, days later? Well, pretty brave to return at all, I think. There is no sign of his uncle's body. Now, if he was a proper investigator, we wouldn't have slept through the night. Like, all investigators seem to not need sleep. He'd be back there a couple of hours later. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, if he can't do it all in four hours of game time, it's not worth playing. Later, he places a telephone order for a pickaxe, a spade, six carboys of sulfuric acid and a military gas mask to be delivered to the shunned house. This is what happens when you don't have Google or Amazon. <laughs> But this is also how you can tell he's an investigator. I mean, not just the flamethrowers earlier, but just the idea that he you know, he phones up. I don't know what kind of store you'd phone for all that. Acme. <laughs> Have you, you've been to America, right? This is just your general store. So, so you're saying Walmart? Yeah, I'm saying just like a general store in any town I seem to go to, they seem to have a counter selling guns, ammunition. They've probably got carboys of sulfuric acid around the back. And a flamethrower. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Maybe that was just Montana. I don't know. So once he has all this this nifty gear, he digs deep into the earthen floor until he uncovers something horrible. And as the text says, Some secrets of inner earth are not good for mankind, and this seemed to me one of them. And I think that is actually... A theme that runs through so much of Lovecraft. Yeah, this yeah. thing about what's down below in the ground, yeah. Yeah, The Secrets of Inner Earth. That'd be a good title for a book. It would. And as he digs down, he finds something that is no longer Earth. He finds some substance or thing under the ground. The surface I uncovered was fishy and glassy, a kind of semi-putrid congealed jelly with suggestions of translucency. I scraped further and saw that it had form. There was a rift where a part of the substance was folded over. The exposed area was huge and roughly cylindrical, like a mammoth, soft, blue-white stovepipe, doubled in two. Its largest part, some two feet in diameter. Still more I scraped, and then abruptly I leapt out of the hole and away from the filthy thing, frantically unstopping and tilting the heavy carboys and precipitating their corrosive contents one after another down that charnel gulf and upon the unthinkable abnormality whose titan elbow I had seen. And what occurs to me about this scene is you know, we, we've, we've now realised that the shape that he's seen outlined in NITRA on the earth floor above is not a doubled-over human form, a buried corpse there, but simply the outline of this elbow. So basically, as an investigator, he cannot tell an arse from an elbow. <laughs> as said, failed spot-hidden shape. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing that gets me from that quote, not only is it glassy, but it is fishy. Yeah, it's the fishiness. You've got to get that in there. <laughs> oh, yes. It wouldn't be properly repellent without a bit of the sea. He pulls all the acid into the hole, dissolving the huge buried thing. It releases enough greenish-yellow fumes that people in the local area assume there's been a chemical spill at a factory. And so the narrator fills in the pit his job done, and, and as he describes it, fear had gone out of the place. The dampness was less fetid. And all the strange fungi had withered to a kind of harmless greyish powder, which blew ash-like along the floor. One of the Earth's nethermost terrors had perished forever. And, if there be a hell, 
it had received the last demon soul of an unhallowed thing. The narrator mourns his uncle, shedding the first of many tears. Which is kind of unusual for a Lovecraftian character to shed tears. It is. I mean, this is a rare moment of sentiment in a Lovecraft story. I mean, his stories are are generally pretty unemotional, but here we have some genuine sorrow being expressed, and it's it's there all the way through the story. And yeah, I do wonder whether you know between this and the fact that the the narrator is called Elihu Whipple, whether this is you know part of Lovecraft's mourning for his own grandfather Whipple Phillips, or indeed his father. I yeah. think. I think it seems more like a father relationship to me i mean it could be his grandfather or his father but i think it's certainly a reflection of that i think that's hard to avoid and the other notable thing here is we get a happy ending in Mm. a lovecraft story yeah you don't get many of those which is strange because all he appears to have done is burnt off the thing's elbow well, ah, no. But... Yeah, well, actually, I mean, this is sort of covered. We we glossed over that a bit. But having poured in those six you know, large glass containers, uh, and a carboy is anywhere from kind of 20 to 60 litres, so that is a lot of sulfuric acid. So he's poured it in, and it's sort of spread along the, the, the whole buried form underneath. And it's had such an effect that these vapours have come up all over the town, and people have th- assumed there's been some kind of accident at a factory or a chemical spill that's, that's caused these vapours but it is in fact this this huge thing buried under the earth that is succumbing to the acid and the story finishes thus the next spring no more pale grass and strange weeds came up at the shunned house's terraced garden and shortly afterward carrington harris rented the place it is still spectral but its strangeness fascinates me and I shall find, mixed with my relief, a queer regret when it is torn down to make way for a tawdry shop or vulgar apartment building. The barren old trees in the yard have begun to bear small, sweet apples, and last year the birds nested in their gnarled boughs. And that's quite an interesting thing, you know, his, his belief that you know, he, within the narrator's lifetime he'd see the house torn down and replaced by a shop or an apartment building. You know, we're recording this in 2017, the house is still there. There's also lots of echoes of Dreams in the Witch House, yeah. kind of echoing the fate of the house in that story. In a lot of ways, I think you can see this story is almost a prototype for both um, uh, The Colour Out of Space and, and The Dreams in the Witch House. I mean, there's, there's lots of elements there that feed into both. It, you know, in The Colour Out of Space, you've got this, this buried hidden entity that goes out and, and corrupts the, you know, the surrounding foliage and the people living there and sucks the life out of them. And that's just what we see here. And in the dreams in the witch house, it's the you know the idea of the this sort of gothic horror from the past, this you know very traditional horror, suddenly being viewed through the lens of the mythos in a much more scientific or pseudo scientific way, as you know being a multi dimensional being or intruding into other dimensions of, of of existence, and being part of a larger alien network of consciousness. we look at some of the story's influences and adaptations. Well, as we said, the real shunned house is at 135 Benefit Street in Providence. But Lovecraft knew it by a different name, the Babbitt House. Yeah, he referred to it in, in a number of letters. The shunned house wasn't the first time he was even moved to write about it. He, he did write a poem called The House in 1920, which uh, was inspired by exactly the same property. 
But you wouldn't really know it unless you were informed of this. He mentions it in a letter, doesn't he, that yeah. it's informed by the House on Benefit Street. We've mentioned the name Benefit Street a few times, but uh, we should probably give some context because you know, now that we've actually walked around there. I mean, this is, um, I guess, one of the oldest streets in Providence. Uh, yeah, at the time it wasn't called Benefit Street either. It was, was called it? Back it's Street, called... yeah. It's up a bloody steep hill as well. Uh, well, actually, no, it's, it's, Benefit Street was uh, a bit further down the hill. It wasn't right up at the mm. top. I'm still going up that hill from what I remember. <laughs> I think it ran <laughs> parallel to we, the river, right? Yeah, we crossed yeah. over it on the way when yeah. we went up towards yeah. Angel, Yeah, which yeah. also gets mentioned in the story. Yes. Notably, his aunt Lillian lived there as a lady's companion in the 1910s. So I guess that was perhaps what drew him to it because he would have been inside, right? I'm sure. Potentially, yeah. Or maybe not if his, his aunt was just a kind of an employee i don't know what would be a lady's companion like a maid or um well sure. I, I i think there's this sort of traditional role that's not quite a maid but for elderly single women or widows uh where they would employ younger women to you know, basically keep them company mm, right but the house has been fairly heavily renovated since Lovecraft's stay. And, you, you, I mean, looking at it now, I think you took some photos, didn't you? Oh, yeah, sure. We'll put so, them on the show notes. Yeah. And so you can see, I mean, it's it's, it's a nice bit of uh, kind of wooden Providence architecture. But, yeah, it doesn't really stand out in any way to me. But I think the notable thing, as Lovecraft describes in the story, is when you stand on the pavement outside the house you are stood next to the exposed cellar wall yes. because originally that was earthen. Well, you would, the, the ground has been dug away when the street was expanded. So whereas uh, that would have once been underground, now that cellar wall is now exposed, which is kind of in, an intriguing feature. Mm. Yeah, particularly as there are windows and a door in it. Yeah. But oddly enough, I mean, despite the fact that the shunned house is explicitly referenced in this as, as being the Benefit Street house, and that it you know, obviously influenced Lovecraft enough that he wrote about it twice, as well as in his letters. It wasn't actually the catalyst that led to the writing of this story. Instead, um, he was visiting Elizabeth, New Jersey, and uh, saw a house there that reminded him of the shunned house. And then as soon as it sort of set those, those things in motion in his mind, he ended up writing the story. One thing I was reminded of so much while reading the story or rereading it was William Hope Hodgson's Karnaki the Ghostfinder. If you've not read those stories, they are about a sort of classic Edwardian psychic investigator, a sort of gentleman delver into the occult who goes out and, and solves hauntings and, and, and uh, supernatural manifestations for people. I mean, there are a variety of things that happen in the various stories. Some of them are complete frauds and hoaxes, uh, but there are a few of them that are definitely of unnatural origin. Well, for a start, Kanaki approaches them quite often in a very scientific manner and uses all sorts of odd, for, at that stage, cutting-edge electrical equipment. And so when it came round to the, the use of the crook's tube in this, it just felt like something out of a Kanaki story. Electric pentacles at the ready. <laughs> yes. Also the fact that, you know, this creature that he's facing is something that appears to be a haunting at first, but turns out to be this manifestation potentially of something extra-dimensional poking through into our dimension and, and doing horrible things. And something kind of large and incomprehensibly, you know, inhuman like that. And this is something that comes up again and again in the Karnaki stories. 
one other influence, thinking of the science meets the, what on the surface could be supernatural, is something that reoccurs quite often in Nigel Neal's works, in particular the stone tape. Mm. Yeah, I and mean, the stone tape, with its, its scientific investigation into the supernatural leading to tragedy, is, I, I, I think follows very much the template of this. And almost the kind of idea of identities being copied or mm. taken is very much like the layers of the stone tape itself, things oh, like yeah. the ghost keeping the thing that's buried way deep in the past recordings, kind of keeping it at bay. Almost. Yeah, that, that's, that's a good point. I mean, yeah, you could really make an argument that the stone tape is almost an adaptation of the shunned house. Hmm. Oh, going off at a fairly different angle, but mm. there's a lot of similarities in structure. And Caitlin R. Kiernan, well known for her mythos tales, wrote a story called So Runs the World Away, in which a nest of ghouls and vampires lives in a house in the same location. So this is identified in the story as the same street address, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so obviously a big influence on her. There's also been two film adaptations, one made by Ivan Zukon. That's a, another great name. <laughs> based on the story in 2003, and another by Eric Morgre. Made a short film about it in 2012. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see those. We've not, but... Yeah, I mean, Zucon is an Italian filmmaker, I think. I mean, certainly his films are made in Italy. He's done a number of Lovecraft adaptations, and they tend to be kind of fairly free adaptations with a, a lot of extreme horror and gore in there. I remember that now. I've seen it. God, that's... There's a... Yeah. Yeah, I remember one bit because it made me wince and never watch it again. <laughs> um, there's a almost Eric Zahn-type storyline in there where a um, a woman who's... She's either a violinist or cellist, and play, plays a string instrument, basically bites her wrists open and then starts playing with the uh, the tendons in her oh, arm. Oh, is it that in that story? Because yeah. you've mentioned that before. Yeah, that, that, that image is seared into my and that's head. that's in the shunned house? Yeah. No, that's in the, well, it's in the film. It's not in the... Obviously, in the story. But it's oh. in the film adaptation because it's yeah. it's a kind of portmanteau that there's it lots is, of yeah. stories that take oh, place in okay. the house. I, right. and, and now you mention it, I have seen this film. I, I saw it over ten years ago, which is why it didn't quite register. And yes, yeah, I mean, you know, what I was just sort of saying about you know Zukon's work being fairly extreme. Yes, my impressions of that largely come from having seen this film. If you're a fan of of uh, filmmakers like Fulci, then you know you'll probably find him to your taste. Mm. Yeah, especially with with what I remember from especially the visuals in the Shunned House is that it's not got that same kind of glow that big productions have. It's a very stark, almost, hey, this has been filmed on a uh, relatively steady handheld camera like you'd find at someone's family video. It's very stark and realistic. Hmm. Now let's take a look at what we can steal for gaming. As we mentioned earlier, I mean, this really does feel like a Call of Cthulhu scenario. Uh, you have the heavy investigation to begin with, and then it's let's tool up and go monster hunting. I mean, this is the classic template. And it's clear that the author of this scenario has done a lot of research to create a very interesting and in-depth background to the location. So they've drawn on a lot of local legends and actual factual occurrences as well. And you'll read every damn word that I wrote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of handouts, right? <laughs> oh, fuck yes. I think what can we take for gaming? I think we can look at this story and think what elements has it got? And, and one of the strong elements to me 
is this old abandoned house. And I think most of us, when we were kids in the area we grew up or we encountered somewhere along the line, there was, you know, an old abandoned house. I mean, where I grew up, there was one just near my near my school. There was a, an old abandoned house, very much like this one. And it was kind of closed off. But I remember kind of missing out on the fact that a bunch of my friends went there and one fell through the floor and injured himself and things <laughs> like this. I missed that trip, but it sounded pretty cool. And we see it also in a number of Stephen King stories. If we think of Salem's Lot, where there's, I think it's the old Marsden house, the old house up on the hill. With, and and the, the main character in that, you know, remembers going there as a kid and having some creepy experiences and they used to dare each other to go inside it. And we see it today in... Not quite the same thing, but it's this evoking thoughts of Stranger Things and shows like that, where you've got kids doing things. And again, with Stephen King with It, you've got the stories of the kids. And then you've got decades later when the adults go back and uh, look at the scene again. So I'm quite drawn to that in game terms. And also the way that Lovecraft portrays this place creates that sense of unease and revulsion. Yeah, you know, this isn't just abandoned. It's abandoned and decrepit. Everything is covered in cobwebs and dust. The furniture has rotted away. You go down to the cellar, there's fungus. There's this weird shape on the floor. It's an earth floor. There's a horrible smell. There's vapours rising up. I mean, this is, you know, a fantastic word picture. And the weird, the weird vegetation as well, right? Yeah, Outside yes. before you even get in the house. Yeah. And the twisted tree roots that are strange, forming strange... Um, growths and shapes. Or perhaps, you know, growing around the shapes of what's buried under there, giving hints of it. So this is a subtle indication, well, maybe not so subtle indication to the players that we don't know what's wrong, but something is definitely wrong. Yeah, but it's not just a clue. It's also helping to create that sense of unease. Mm. Because it's just i think something within us that abandoned places that dusty decrepit old places are inherently frightening and a sense of the unnatural as well with the mm. vegetation and the and so on does leave one nice big open hook to do a sequel for that imagine that it um, it does follow through with what the narrator said and they eventually do knock down the house and start building it well, a surveyor would find that there's this huge void underneath the house that looks, well, it's got the shape of an elbow in one place, assuming he passes his spot hidden roll and realises what an arse is and what an elbow is. <laughs> um, but imagine what would happen if someone did uh, did fill that in with, let's say, concrete or um, some polymer. Plaster of Paris. Yeah, exactly. And then dug up the outline of whatever was <laughs> under there. Yeah. Maybe ah. maybe there's some of that fungus still down there and then by pulling it out along with all this material it's suddenly exposed to the world above and can start to breathe and start to uh, breed again. Yeah, it'd be like a massive lost wax uh, brass casting, bronze yeah. casting. Yeah. Or alternatively, I mean, you've got the fact that you know, the narrator poured all this acid down and he describes how these vapours popped up all over the neighbourhood, these yellow vapours as the thing uh, dissolved, and that people witnessed this. How many of those people breathed some of those vapours? Mm. And, and if some of the essence of this entity was in there, you know, maybe he hasn't you know, multiplied it completely, but perhaps these people now within themselves and within their bloodline going forward now have just a little hint of Taint. whatever this was. Yeah. Because yeah, they couldn't have all been wearing military gas masks like he ordered from the store. 
No, no, no. He probably bought out the stock. Because yeah. <laughs> I like the idea that when this thing attacks, this, this creature below the cellar floor attacks someone, it doesn't come out and attack like a traditional monster. It sends a kind of psychic possession or some such form of attack that possesses from the inside the target. And we see all these different faces manifesting on them as if the monster is imbued with all the things that it's attacked and taken on before. It's got all those personalities kind of locked inside it. And what you're saying about the the unfortunate residents of Providence inhaling these vapours from the acid attack, is that just more people that it's kind of absorbing or mm. taking into its gestalt somehow? Or, or because it's so diluted and spread around like that, maybe it now needs to reform the gestalt. Maybe you could have sort of these, these strange meetings in town as people find themselves drawn together. They don't know why. And they, they, they've got this subconscious desire to communicate with each other. And it sort of spreads from there. What they actually want is physical contact. And it's, it's not a sexual thing. It's, it's not building to an orgy. But every time they touch each other, there's sort of a stickiness and leave traces of the other person on themselves. And eventually, sooner or later, they are just going to merge together. It does remind me when we were discussing the fact that, that how the, say, the monster in inverted commas, how it appears, it does remind me a lot of the film adaptation of From Beyond. Mm. The fact you've got this thing which just has multiple faces, multiple beings have stuck together. Yeah, it's making me think a little of uh, the 80s film Society. Oh, yes. Yeah, the, is it in the town hall or something, in a big house when they're all kind of in the... Drawing room or something. Well, yes, yeah, I, I think it's the you know the large family estate. Yeah. Yes, the threat it's... of the hunt, the smell of the shunt, and also I mean with with this thing being able to you know absorb identities like this. I mean, if you wanted to extrapolate on this and and do something inspired by it, this thing can obviously manifest at least to some extent as these people it's devoured we only see one version of this as it devours Elihu Whipple but I mean what if it could sort of send these vapours out and form you know simulacra the people it had devoured maybe there's still enough of their thoughts in there that it could even pass them I mean, it could end up being almost something like an anglerfish sending this, these little bits of bait out and it's sort of you know maybe a few days later the narrator sees Elihu Whipple turn up on his doorstep and is you know suddenly you've mm. got to come back to the house yeah you know, i've found something remarkable we're getting a bit of thing on the doorstep there mm. but do you take it that the thing underground this this monster whatever it was that we see its elbow was once one of these uh, is it one of the roulet family that was kind of a vampire werewolf type thing that was buried under the cellar floor and then has subsequently been attacking people by this psychic attack and as each with each murder, it's been slowly growing bigger and bigger. So it started off as human scale, but now it's over the centuries. Yeah. It's grown and grown and grown and grown. I think the answer is possibly. I mean, one of the things I like about this story is unusually for Lovecraft, he doesn't over-explain things. He leaves a lot of this up to the imagination of the reader. And yeah, I mean, it could be that... Or it could be that this is something completely alien that was down there the whole time. Uh, mm. that seems we get unlikely. all this uh, allusion to you know the graveyard and people yeah, being having exactly. buried there. It does seem to hint to me that this is perhaps one of those 
people that was buried down there that has, has just got bigger and well, bigger. I mean, the, the suggestion is it is Etienne Roulet, yeah. um, or at least a member of his family. Uh, but because there's, I mean, all the stuff in there about, you know, the strange prayers and the diagrams and reading unwholesome books and stuff like that. And it could even be that, you know, this is something that he deliberately did to himself, that this was mm. some ritual he did before his death. And it's sort of, you know, I'm going to survive death by becoming something that that is undying. I think if we would have this monster in a scenario, it'd be hard to avoid having it come to life, though, wouldn't it? You know, if you've got this big thing down under the cellar floor, at some point, surely it's going to break out and start stomping around and killing people. Or, or at the very least, you know, uh, it reacts in some way when you pour the acid oil. Yeah. It, but it just passively lies there and lets itself get dissolved. But I kind of like that. Yeah. But I think I wouldn't, you know, I, I probably wouldn't do that if I was running it as a game. Yeah, there'd be a little miniature earthquake as it thrashes around rather than just hearing the moans from up above. Yeah, but, it seems somewhat anticlimactic, mm, right? Yeah, but I quite like the fact that it doesn't engage directly in that sense, that it's got a degree of remoteness in its influence, mm. that it can, it can affect stuff at range while it sits back, or in this case lies motionless underground, and yeah. still is able to survive and do some pretty horrific stuff. Yeah, one thing that occurs to me is I wonder whether this was an influence on Colin Wilson for uh, The Return of the Loigor. Because the buried thing I, underground, yeah. Yeah, but because the Loigor seem to operate in a very similar way. that they, they, they are almost psychic vampires, except they seem to suck hope and life out of people. They are these entities that tend to live buried underground and they acted to remove um, using psychic manifestations. Another aspect of this I really liked was the fact that it takes, you know, what is, for the time, a fairly cutting-edge scientific exploration into this supernatural phenomenon. And I was wondering what that might look like in the modern day. I mean, if you had a group of, of investigators in, in, you know, the present day who decided to do something similar, I mean, what kind of tools would they use? What would they actually do? I mean, it's not cutting edge anymore, but we see it with Geiger counters and things like that. It's this use of technology. I'm not really up to what's cutting edge in scientific equipment right now. Yeah, I mean, I guess most of the things that I'd go to in my mind are things that have been around for decades. In fact, probably even since Lovecraft's time. You're finding ways of irradiating the creature, you know, like you say, you know, various meters to measure, you know, temperature changes, electromagnetic fields, all, all the kind of stuff that ghost hunters use as, as detection stuff. In terms of the weapons that you'd use, how would you go about in the modern day trying to deal with a an intangible monstrous foe i'd almost be tempted to go um, to go backwards in a sense that lovecraft when he was writing that the gothic tropes such as what we said about vampire hunters earlier something like bible crucifix stake and so on those had been used a lot and they'd become the norm Whereas he went for something new, he went for something modern that was, in a sense, just the antithesis. It was very, very different to what had previously been seen. But the problem is that now we've seen this so much, thinking of Richard Matheson's, or Hell House, um, the film that was The Legend of Hell, um, Hell House, that you have science combating the supernatural. How about taking that step back and actually using the supernatural against the supernatural? Because it is now different, that it's something we're not used to seeing in modern fiction. Hmm. So uh, how would you see that actually taking place in a scenario? Uh, psychic phenomena. You could draw on some um, thinking of some of the weird and odd 
experiments that went around in the time of the Cold War that we looked at for mm-hmm. World War Cthulhu Cold War. So you get a little hint of science being brought in there. But yeah, I think there was, there's also the film The Quiet Ones. I oh think, yeah, that takes yes. on a kind of um, kind of psychic use against ghosts. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's set in the 1970s, if I remember correctly, and hmm. yeah, is about an ill-fated psychic experiment. Yeah, I, and and of course, I mean, you, you mentioned you know Rich Matheson and Hell House, but there was the inspiration for that, obviously, which um, which is Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, mm-hmm. which yeah, I think shows just how horribly wrong things can go if you introduce sensitive psychic characters into a place where they really should not be. So, yes, I mean, you talk about, you know, the, the, this be perhaps being a tool um, that you can use to, to interact with or combat something that's non-physical. But, of course, the flip side of that is always, in order to do that, you're letting it in. Mm. But it'd be a bit boring if they didn't. <laughs> You've got to have some kind of friction, some kind of element of danger there to give the, oh, story, yeah. the story some kind of drama. One thing that occurs to me if we're setting it in the modern day is something we see used by bomb disposal units and so on is the use of robots or drones to go in and do the work, do the dangerous coalface work. So we could send in some sort of uh, drone to survey the area. We could potentially get some kind of robot or some sort of device um, to go down there and take, and samples. take yeah. samples to dig it remotely. Yeah, I mean, I, I was wondering, for example, what would happen if you took a sample of that yellow vapour that came up. Is this just a sample you could ab- analyse afterwards? Or is this part of the creature? By taking it away, are you then inviting it into your safe space? And when you, when you analyse it, are you, again, then making yourself vulnerable to it? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to recall there's a quote in the story where it describes the vapour rising up and seeming to look... Yes. At people, yeah. which I kind of wonder how that even manifests. How does the vapor look as if it's looking at you? I don't know. Does it I, form I, I, eyes? And... The, the way I picture it is that it it sort of manifests a roughly human shape, and you can sort of make out where the head would be. And if that angled towards you, you definitely get the impression that it was looking at you. That'd be great if you had a character that was suffering from insanity and you were able to hit that as a possible delusion as well you know (laughs) this thing is looking at you or is it because it could just be a delusion or is it (laughs) i do have the uh inspiration now to run a game where the characters effectively are ais that are piloting uh bomb disposal robots going into a haunted house (laughs) yeah this thing of the vapor i think is quite an effective one if Mm. if the if this thing is attacked and we think we got rid of it, but actually it's the vapour that's risen up out of it, which is kind of like the spirit of it, we might sort of say. Is it the spirit or is it almost like a limb? I was thinking maybe even once they destroyed the body, this thing continues to exist. Mm. And that destroying the body won't get rid of this. As, as you kind yeah. of implied earlier, that it's gone out and it's still around. So we think we've conquered it, but maybe we haven't. The taint's just gone somewhere else. Well, it can go to other places. It can manifest as a a ghostly kind of spirit, which we can't really attack because it's non-corporeal. Or it can inhabit other people. Another aspect of this story that, that really appeals to me is the fact that you're taking these sort of classic gothic horrors, the haunted house, the vampire... 
But putting this mythos twist on things, you're turning them into something alien and unexpected and unknowable. I was wondering what other kinds of, of spins you could put on, on kind of classic horrors like that to make them into something that feels more like a Call of Cthulhu scenario. Yeah, if any of you listening have got ideas along those lines, then, yeah, yeah, I mean, contact us on social media and let us know. I mean, uh, we're, we're sort of interested in oh, yeah, how we can all have a little fun with this. Now, something we must mention here, when we run scenarios, we tend to have a list of names appropriate to the era or the setting that we wish to use as NPCs on the fly. This provides a fantastic resource. So we have so many wonderful names. We have Elihu Whipple, the uncle who we've already mentioned. Roby Dexter, the wife of, of Mr. Harris, who starts this whole horror off. You have another Harris. You have Elkanah Harris. Obadiah Brown, Elizar Durfee. Yep. Welcome, Harris. What a first name. I really want to have an investigator at some stage with the first name Welcome. The one I really want to play, and just such a strange name to me, is one of the servants who was called Preserved Smith. Preserved. <laughs> Preserved you know what I mean? in what? <laughs> Working alongside his good buddy Pickle Jones. Yeah, I mean, it's a great name. I just mm. hope that one of our listeners hasn't got the, the first name Preserved because well, they may take offence at this, but I, please I, don't. I, I think if, if you've been given the name Preserved in this day and age, you've probably heard all the jokes by now. Mm -hmm. But so many. So we've got Peleg, we've got Duty or Dutty, Mahitabel. Mahitabel. I mean, Mahitabel is a great name, and it always puts me in mind of Don Marquis's uh, fantastic comic series of stories about Archie and Mahitabel. Uh, Archie the Cockroach, who is this, um, the reincarnated spirit of a dead writer who has taken over the, or become been reincarnated as a cockroach that lives in the newsroom and um, leaves messages on Don Marquis's desk overnight by jumping on the keys of his typewriter. And they're all written in lowercase because obviously because he's jumping on the keys he can't hit the shift key. Yeah. And one last one I want to throw in is a name we've heard before in, other, in another Lovecraft story, Tillingast, with the first name Pardon. Pardon Tillingast? What? <laughs> no one in their right pardon mind. Is, no one in their right mind is going to pardon him. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, having an investigator called Pardon in a game is just going to cause it to degenerate into an endless stream of jokes. Yeah. You will never have a serious moment in that game, especially if you've got Welcome and Pardon. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's What's Up, Marsh. <laughs> the good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. Well, it is that time once again. That joyous, happy time in which we thank all you lovely, lovely people who give us money via Patreon. This money pays for our running costs and expenses and uh, new equipment and generally keeps the podcast and us going. So thank you. Thank you very much to each and every one of you. And we have some new people to thank. We do. And one other thing that we should mention here is that we're working on the next issue of The Blasphemous Tome, which should be coming out reasonably soon. And this is an 80s style fanzine that goes out to all our backers. All our Patreon backers receive at least one copy 
This issue, number three, is going to be officially licensed from Chaosium and will include uh, articles or scenarios with Call of Cthulhu statistics included. And if you have any articles that you wish to submit or artwork, then please let us know. Keeping the 80s alive for another year. Sorry about that. <laughs> and we have had some submissions already. Thank you to each and every one of you who've sent them in, and please keep them coming. For those generous, generous people who give us $5 or more per episode, we sing their thanks, we offer their praises in the only way we know how, through the medium of song. And our first song this week goes out not to an individual, but to a collective. Indeed, the esoteric order of role players. The name of an actual play podcast online, which we'll provide a link to in the show notes. So thank you very much to the Hysteric Order of Role Players. Indeed, thank you very much, guys and girls, and apologies for what we're about to inflict upon you. Yes, thank you, and prepare yourselves. Thank you. 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 Esoteric order of 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 Role Players And the second set of sung thanks we have to offer are to the rather gloriously named Robin Hood Dial the Second. Thank you very much, Robin. Indeed. Thank you very much, Robin. Sometimes when people have got unusual names, we ask them for guidance on how to pronounce it or how to address them when we say thanks. And we had um, some rather interesting advice from Robin Hood Dahl II. Yes, the advice we were offered by Robin went as such. Hello, gents. Very happy to offer my support. As for advice on how to properly chant my name, I suggest starting by walking widdishins around the microphone, practising your unearthly speech between gritted teeth. At the necessary moment, brandish your daggers aloft and screech my blasphemous mantra to the dead stars. Robin Hood, dial the second. Up your pledge, you cheap bastard. Upon completion of this ancient ritual, enjoy the cathartic feels and onward to a great podcast. We shall endeavour to oblige. Oh boy, I'm going to have to see you dance around a microphone now. Like, like I ever stopped, Matt. Like <laughs> I ever stopped. Thank you. Thank you. Robin Hood. Thank you. 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 Robin Hood. Thank you. Robin Hood. We're supposed to call him a cheap bastard. And now we take a look at what's happening on social media. We have a kindly written iTunes review from Sam Stamps, who says... It's titled, Always Waiting for the Next Episode. These guys are great, very entertaining, and give a great spin on all subjects that are Lovecraftian. Well, that's very kind, Sam. 
and I hope that we'll get more iTunes reviews because we welcome these greatly. They help us a lot in the ratings in iTunes. So if you are minded to write us a review, please do. Yes, well, thank you very much, Sam. Hey, thank you indeed. Over on G+, Linus Larson had some comments on our recent Social Conflicts episode. A thing proposed on the Happy Jacks RPG podcast, and something I'm quite on board with, is to ask the target player what their character would find agreeable, stroke persuasive, etc. It puts the control of the character back in the player's hands. They themselves get to decide what would convince their character, and if there's virtually no argument, leverage, or button that would change their mind, then the character remains unswayed. Yeah, I mean, this strikes me as being a particularly good way of handling social conflicts against mm. uh, player characters. We sort of, I, I think, got partway there before in saying that if we were having you know, conflicts between player characters, then we'd want both parties to agree that this conflict should go ahead. But I think you know, th- this, this spin on it is a very nice way of handling things. I think so. I think if I was the unnamed narrator in the Shunned House story... As a player, I'm going to be like, well, I'm not going to go into that old place in the middle of the night. Are you mad? (laughs) Why would I do that? And they're like, well, can we persuade you? I'm like, no. But as a player, I'm like, actually, it'd be pretty cool to go in there, right? But it makes no sense for my character to do this. But then if you put it to me, well, Paul, is there anything we could say to you that would persuade you to do this thing? Then I'm like, oh, actually, yeah, maybe there is. Maybe I can think of something, you know, that I can give to you to, to, that you could use to persuade me. Yeah, I mean, if we go in there, we've got an excuse to buy flamethrowers, Paul. Flamethrowers. <laughs> okay, I'm sold. <laughs> dynamite, right? Uh, they sold that of dynamite, just flamethrowers. Oh, I think they go so well together, though. It was all about the crook's tubes for me. <laughs> and, and our good friend Frank on Google Plus also has a comment. I wonder why you did not mention direct intimidation at a player versus player level. Works brilliantly for me. <laughs> it does. So we've mentioned Frank Delventhal several times in the podcast before. If the name doesn't ring a bell, I mean, he's, he's a listener who produces these fantastic YouTube videos in which he performs basically circus strongman acts, bending huge rebars over his nose to bursting chains with his chest to ripping telephone directories in half or packs of cards in half with his fingers or you know, bending nails. Yeah. And, and so I, I'm just now picturing Frank at the gaming table, just looking around at another player character, steely-eyed, making eye contact just to see tears a telephone direction, or worse, a hardcover 7th edition rule book in no! half with his bare hands. <laughs> and it's sort of, do you want to roll for that? No, 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 I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Frank, whatever. Yeah. I, I do use his um, bent nails that he sent us in the post a, a little while back as intimidation against my dice, saying, <laughs> do you want me to send you to Frank? Roll well this time, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> I'm thinking of uh, the the Star Wars scene with when they're playing holographic chess. <laughs> Let the Delventhal win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and another episode that we released recently, one of our bonus episodes. We've had quite a few bonus episodes recently. I hope you've been enjoying them. Uh, please do let us know. This one was the Call of Cthulhu scenario seminar, and Lee Carnell comments on Blasphemous Tomes website thus. I was pleased to hear Mike mention one of Marcus Rowland's scenarios, even though that particular scenario, Bad Moon Rising, does suffer particularly badly from lacking player agency. I think that Marcus's writings in the White Dwarf era especially were important to the UK Cthulhu scene prior to the 1990s. 
Nice to hear call-outs for Deadlight and Paper Chase too. I love my third, Games Workshop, edition rulebook. Yeah, I really like Marcus's work. I, I've not played too many of his Call of Cthulhu scenarios. I, I remember him doing a fantastic one based on uh, the Karnaki, the Ghostfinder story, uh, The Horse of the Invisible. I've played a few games with him at conventions in recent years. Uh, he did this, this weird game called Diana Warrior Princess, which was about how future cultures might look back at our age the same way as we look back at uh, Greek myths through the, the lens of a TV series like Xeno Warrior Princess and use the personages of today in, in similar completely erroneous manners but that was princess diana right yes yeah the the game that he wrote which you can find online um which i highly recommend that that applies best of all to our interests is a game called forgotten futures this is a a core set of mechanics fairly simple set of mechanics but he does these world books that are explorations of different uh, science fiction and fantasy uh, stories and settings of yore. And one of the world books that he did is one based on Karnaki the Ghostfinder. It is a thorough exploration of you know, all the weird tech and the, the parapsychological means that Karnaki uses, the kinds of uh, monsters that he faces down. And yeah, if you're at all interested in Karnaki or, or just you know, the classic psychic investigator tropes, then it is well, well worth checking out. And what are our final thoughts about The Shunned House? The Shunned House is a weird story for me in that it's of a length where it is one of Lovecraft's major stories just in terms of its substance. But when I was thinking back um, a few years back to all the Lovecraft stories I'd read when I was young. Most of them are seared in my memory. I could, you know, I could remember certainly the general outlines of the, st- of the stories. I could remember a lot of the events. I could remember what lay at the heart of it. With The Shunned House, I could not remember a single thing about it. Not Seriously? One. You couldn't remember The Elbow? No. No, I did This uh, was a curious one for me, because I remember in the 80s when Lovecraft stories were published in, I think it was Grafton, yeah. uh, three volumes... That story, The Shunned House, wasn't in those books. Okay. Uh, so I read those and thought, oh, that's cool. I've read all of Lovecraft stuff. And then I sort of discovered, you know, there's some um, collaborations and so on that he did. And then, yeah, I found The Shunned House in, you know, some collection somewhere. And I was like, what? This is a Lovecraft story? Why isn't it in those collections? It, it, it seemed to get omitted for no good reason. And I was, I, I really liked the story. I think it is longer than it needs to be, maybe, as we said, with all that research. I like that, but it's maybe... It'd be good if he kind of went back, if if such a thing were possible, that he could kind of go back and just edit that somewhat. Yeah. Um, Because there's so much good stuff in this story, and it kind of comes from the period when Lovecraft was starting to do his, you know, really good work. If you go on YouTube... You can find this story read by Wayne June, uh, who is a terrific reader. But as far as the amount of detail in there is concerned, yeah, I, I do find it quite oppressive. I mean, this is definitely a story of two halves. In the first half, I found not insufferably dull, but notably dull. Yeah, kind of. Well, if you like the middle portion, really, isn't yeah. it? Because the start's really good, the end's really good. There's just a bit too much padding there in the centre. 
And yeah, it struck me that there's actually quite an important lesson in there when it comes to um, running or writing RPG scenarios, which is you, you may go off and do lots and lots of research. You may be able to you know, create an absolutely fantastic sense of place, you know, create all these little diversions or things that bring the setting to life. But if you're not careful, those become overwhelming. Just because you research something and just because you found it interesting doesn't mean that it belongs in your game, because your players may find it distracting or extraneous or just plain dull. And if, it could just suck the life out. I think make it interesting, but also make it more easy to comprehend. Hmm. Yeah. Perhaps the two go somewhat hand in hand. Yeah. But overall, I think... I think we all agreed it was a, an interesting story with some really good aspects that we can take for gaming and... And flamethrowers. And flamethrowers. That you was what sold Matt. Yep. You can never go wrong with the flamethrower until you do. It has kind of left me with a weird kind of feeling. So from me, I feel it's... it's, it's au revoir. Uh, adieu. And a bonne nuit for me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.